Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 78 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and participating and sending in all your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com. And I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Now, this podcast is for anyone, whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you're thinking about becoming a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you are already a Muslim who wants to learn more about Islam, this podcast is for you, inshallah. Uh, also, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram at uh, with Wa'il, again, uh, with Wa'il, uh, for you know to receive announcements regarding the podcast and you know uh, the upcoming episodes and the titles of the episodes and the topics and the dates and all these things. Uh, also, I post short videos responding to people's questions about Islam. So yeah, that's that. Uh, now let's talk about today's topic, which is the peace treaty between the Muslims and the people of Quraysh. Now we have we know for a while that. Quraysh and the Muslims, they've been at war for a very long period of time. And certain things took place, certain things happened that led to a peace treaty. Now, it's not as easy as it sounds. It's not that simple. Uh, There will be a lot of tension, and we'll talk about that in a second. So it started with a dream that our Prophet ﷺ had. And we know that any dream that uh, prophets and messengers receive it comes straight from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's either a message from Allah or a sign from Allah or something, you know, in that realm. Uh, so our Prophet ﷺ had a dream that he was performing uh, an Umrah. So what's, what, what is Umrah? Umrah is a pilgrimage like Hajj. And it's almost similar in terms of rituals. So you do, you, you go there, you do tawaf, you do all these things around the Kaaba and all these things with minor differences. Between Hajj and Umrah. The major also differences between Hajj and Umrah in terms of, you know, the concept itself is that Hajj is a mandatory uh, 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 thing upon Muslims. Muslims have, they must perform Hajj if they are capable, meaning if they're physically, mentally, financially, all these things, if they are capable, then they have to perform Hajj. It's, It's a mandatory, it's one of the pillars of Islam, actually. Umrah, on the other hand, is not mandatory. It's optional. So whether you want to perform Umrah or not, it's it's optional. But Hajj, if you can, you have to uh, do it. Also, uh, Hajj uh, has to be performed in a specific time of the year. So you cannot do it randomly at any time. It has to be at a specific time of the year. Uh, unlike Umrah, you can do Umrah whenever you want. So these are, you know, the, the major differences between Hajj and Umrah, but other than that, they are pretty similar. So the Prophet ﷺ received a dream that he is performing uh, Umrah. He's doing Tawaf. Tawaf is basically going around the Kaaba. Now, that means it's a direct command from Allah that he has to perform Umrah. But we have a problem. To perform Hajj or Umrah, you have to go to Mecca. And Mecca is controlled by Quraysh. And Muslims cannot just walk into Mecca while they're at, you know, severe war with Quraysh. 
So the Prophet ﷺ picked one of the uh, four sacred months to go and do the, uh, the Umrah uh, at, and he took the Muslims with him. So why did the Prophet ﷺ pick a, a, a sacred month to do so? For two reasons. Number one, he's sending a clear message to Quraysh that I'm not here for war. For those of you who don't know, the sacred months, uh, Muslims have four uh, sacred months, Dhul Qa'dah, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, and Rajab. These four months are the four sacred months in, in, in Islam. You cannot, as a Muslim, and the Arabs as well, fight during those months. You cannot go to war. Cannot do anything in terms of like, you know, offensive. You can defend yourself if somebody from the outside is attacking you, but you cannot launch an attack or go to war. So the Prophet going to do Umrah during a sacred month is a clear message that he is not interested in war. He's not trying to go to war with them. Also, Quraysh will never prevent anyone from entering Mecca during the four sacred months. So you have now two reasons. Number one, we're telling uh, the people of Quraysh we're not here for war. Number two, the people of Quraysh cannot prevent us from performing Umrah because it's a four sacred months. To prevent us, basically, it's, it's war. And they cannot do so, so they will allow us anyway. So the Prophet uh, and the, the companions, they uh, basically, they were around 1,400 men. They uh, go into uh, the state of Ahram. Now, what is the state of Ahram? The state of Ahram is when you're about to perform uh, Hajj or Umrah, uh, you uh, simply uh, uh, abstain from fighting. You cannot go to war. While you are in a state of Ahram, you cannot fight. Unless you're defending yourself. You're about to save your own life, right? You cannot hunt animals. You cannot hunt animals. You cannot pluck any trees. And so that's the state of a haram. What is a haram? We talked about this, uh, I remember, um, a while ago. A haram is a location. It's the same exact thing as the haram, but it applies on a location, not on a person. So a haram applies on a person. So a person who is in a state of ahram, cannot fight, cannot hunt animals, cannot pluck trees. Now, the haram is the same thing, but when it comes to the location, so it's a location where you cannot fight in or hunt animals in or pluck uh, any uh, types of trees in. So that is... The difference between ihram and haram. Ihram is, uh, applies on a person. Same rules. Haram is uh, a location. Applies on a location. And you know the Mecca is the haram by the Kaaba and all these things. You cannot do any of these things by Mecca. Now, the, the, the Muslims, they became in a state of ihram. That means they cannot fight anymore. Again, they, they're allowed to defend themselves if their life's you know, at risk. And they started heading towards uh, Mecca. On their way, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, you know, he would send scouts to check if there is any danger or anything like that. So he sent a small he sent a small group of you know scouts. They looked around, they didn't find anything. So on their way back, now they were all again they were all in a state of haram except for one companion by the name of Abu Qatada. For some reason, 
uh, that the Prophet uh, knows. It's not mentioned in the books of of, of, bi- of the biography. He was not in a state of haram for some reason that the Prophet understood and it was agreed upon. He was not in a state of haram. So on their way, now they found out that there was no danger, nothing going on. So on their way back to the you know Muslim group, they uh, camped somewhere, and then he got on his horse and he uh, found that there was a herd of gazelles passing by. So he asked his companions, you know, fellow Muslims, to give him his bow and arrow because he put it. It was not on his horse; it was you know where he sat uh, uh, while they were camping. So they re- they they refused. They said, "No, we're not gonna give it to you." Now, the reason why they refused is because, again, like I said, they were in a state of ahram, so they did not want to participate in even hunting the animal, not even giving him the weapon. So he jumped off his horse, got his bow and arrow, got back on his horse, started chasing the gazelles, and he was able to hunt one of them. He brought it back, started cooking it, offered the meat, you know, uh, to his companions. This is before they got to the rest of the you know main group of the muslims uh they still rejected that meat so when he went to his friends and he's like here you go they said no you hunted that animal we cannot eat from that meat then later on they went to the prophet sallallahu and they told him what happened so the prophet asked them did you guys even motion to him where the gazelles were in the first place basically did you make him pay attention to the gazelles they said no he said, did you help him in any way, shape, or form to hunt that gazelle? They said, no. He said, then in that case, yeah, you're allowed to eat that meat. There's no problem. And when you guys eat, if you have any leftovers, please bring me some. Basically, to also show them that you know it is totally fine and he's willing to eat from it as well. This incident is very interesting because it shows that level of faith that the companions had. They were unsure of the source of that meat. Is it haram or halal? Are they allowed to eat it or not? And that's why they technically refused to eat it until they verified from the Prophet ﷺ that they were allowed to eat it. And this is sad because in our time right now, Many Muslims don't care about the source of their food, the source of the meat specifically, whether it's halal or not. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, and I promise I'll get back to the main story. But the the, the issue comes, and 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 we had I had a lot of uh, arguments and, and a lot of talk with, with with fellow Muslims regarding that. Is when you don't know. If the meat that you're eating is halal or not. Now, what is halal? Because there's a lot of people who would say, well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran that the people of the book, the meat of the people of the book is allowed for us. It's halal for us to eat, which is very true. Now, what what do I mean by this? Slaughtering the animal, whatever, it's a cow, uh, a lamb, whatever, the animal that you eat the meat from uh, has to be done or made the slaughtering process has to be made by either a Muslim or someone from the people of the book who slaughters according to their Sharia, according to their uh, tradition, uh, faith tradition. So, for example, if it's a Muslim, they have to slaughter and say the name of Allah, and Allah says this in the Quran: 
تأكلوا ما ذكر اسم الله عليه ولا تأكلوا ما لم يذكر اسم الله عليه Eat from what Allah's name was mentioned on upon slaughtering not upon eating because some people misinterpret this verse they say oh just say bismillah before you eat and everything is halal that's very incorrect and then Allah says in the Quran he forbids us from eating any meat that Allah's name was not mentioned upon slaughtering wala ta'kulu he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wala ta'kulu ma lam yuthkar ismullahu alayhi so Allah in another verse says that أُحِلَّ لَكُمْ طَعَامُ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ The people of the book, their meat is halal for you. You can eat it. Why? Because when the people of the book, if they are actually Christian or if they are actually Jews, they will slaughter according to their Christian faith or Jewish faith. That means they will still mention the name of God upon the you know slaughtering or during the slaughtering of the animal. Now, what we know is the kosher food, because it's kosher, they do it according to the Jewish tradition. So it is halal for us to eat kosher food as Muslims. And of course, by nature, the tabiha, the halal food you know, of the Muslims. The issue comes and the controversy comes and the, 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 the big debate comes. What about the non-kosher and non-halal? What if it's Christian? Well, we don't know that. Because they do not announce themselves as Christian uh, type of like meat. They don't say this meat has been slaughtered according to the Christian faith. Because if they did, then it would have been 100% halal for us to eat. We would be allowed to eat it. The problem is that the, 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 the quote unquote, the Christian meat gets mixed with the non-faith meat. The meat that is processed by you know factories and and whatnot, like you know, I think above eighty percent of the meat is not even like the, the meat doesn't get slaughtered. They just they process it uh, uh, using machines and in factories. So the the slaughtering thing doesn't even exist. Do you understand? And another big issue comes is that if the animal is killed before the slaughtering, which happens in a lot of factories, a lot of meat processing factories. It becomes billion percent haram upon us. And Allah says, like, do not eat the lahm of the meat. Meaning, do not eat the meat of an animal that died before it was slaughtered. So when you go hunt an animal, for example, like back in the day when a Muslim used to hunt an animal, they would not kill it. They would injure it, then slaughter it according to the sharia. And then they, you know, eat from it and cook it and whatever. So if you kill an animal and then go eat its meat, it becomes meat. It's a dead animal. Do you understand how dangerous this is? A dead animal is forbidden. It's like the it's like pork in Islam. It's like pork. You're not allowed to eat a dead animal's meat. So we don't know if the meat, because of you know, again, like I said, the factory processing methods, you don't know if the meat that you're eating that's non-kosher, that's non-halal, because we know kosher and halal they were slaughtered. We know that for a fact. But any other type of meat, we don't know. It's ambiguous to us. It's in a gray area, and we should not, you know, uh, 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 eat meat that we're not uh, positive of where the source of it coming from. We don't know where it's coming from. 
So that's why I, uh, you know, I go back to the that incident with the companions that they had a sh- there was a doubt. They didn't even help him. They know they didn't help Abu Qatada to hunt that gazelle. Yet they said, "Nope, we're not even risking it." And that is an attitude of a true believer. You don't risk it when it comes to halal and haram. We as Muslims, why do you risk it? Why do you risk it? Just go buy kosher, or go. I eat kosher and I eat halal. Alhamdulillah. Just go buy kosher or go buy halal. Alhamdulillah, by the blessings of Allah, halal meats like stores are increasing rapidly in the West. In the West, they're increasing rapidly. So why not? You know, and it tastes different. Wallahi, like, you know, non-Muslims, when they eat halal meat, they're like, whoa, this meat tastes fresh. It tastes good, subhanAllah. But anyway, that's that was a tangent that I really needed to address because, you know, I know a lot of people sometimes get confused about this issue. But this is actually the majority of the scholars. That's what they say about this, uh, you know, this the, this issue, which, which is the meat and the sources of uh, the meat. Now, uh, the Prophet ﷺ sent also scouts to Mecca to, to, to see what's going on, you know, with Quraysh and all these things. And the scout came back. And they told our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that Quraysh is preparing for war. They are ready for war and they will not allow the Muslims. To now Quraysh by that time found out that the Muslims are coming for Umrah. It was not, it's not a secret. So they started you know, arming themselves to prevent the Muslims from... Uh, coming into Mecca and doing tawaf or you know going around the Kaaba doing the Umrah basically and to that our Prophet got so frustrated and he said like I don't know why are they like why are they doing this we are eventually family by the way the Prophet never started war with them and it shows that the Prophet doesn't choose war he's not a warmonger like you know ignorance and, and Islamophobes uh, claim he was so frustrated of the war and the fighting and he expressed it in this incident he said why to, to what end basically what to what end to what end we keep losing men they keep losing men why can't we just come to peace with one another you know they let us do what we want and there will be no war you know there will be no harm done but of course uh Quraysh uh, treated the Muslims with more of a tribalism, which is like, it's it's about pride. You know, you're not going to uh, force us uh, to accept you uh, to come in Mecca and, and, and perform Umrah. It's all about what would people say, basically, what would other tribes say. That was the number one reason why Quraysh did not want to allow the Muslims to, you know, come into Mecca. Now, because the people of Quraysh blocked the main road to Mecca, the Muslims had to take a a different route. The Muslims had to take a different route to get to Mecca, and that forced them to uh, pass by a, a valley, and that valley was filled with thorns. And their feet started, you know, bleeding, and it was sore for an entire day. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know, gave him glad tidings and good news. And he said, everyone who passed through this valley 
will be forgiven for all their past sins, except for the man with the red camel. Now, that was really interesting. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, informed the Prophet. This is not the Prophet making up his own ruling. No, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealing to the Prophet that they're all forgiven except for one. Now, they all started wondering, who is that man with the red camel? They started looking. Again, they were about 1400s, a lot of people. And then they heard a man shouting, uh, have you guys seen my camel? I lost that it. it's red. So they all ran to that guy and they said, hey, man, what's going on here? The Prophet said that you are the only one out of the 1400 who uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala won't forgive, even though you, uh, you know, cross that valley with us. So let's come with us. Let's go to the Prophet and ask him to, you know, ask Allah to forgive you. And to that, the man says, you know what? Finding my camel is more important to me than this forgiveness that you guys are talking about. So clearly he was a hypocrite. And he was in, in this uh, whole trip for his own uh, agenda, for his own reasons. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed that he's not going to forgive him. It's that simple. Then uh, later on, they reached uh, a plane called Hudaybiyah, which is actually the name of the treaty. The peace treaty is called also the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Uh, and the plane of Hudaybiyah, uh, once they reached it, the camel of the Prophet, the, the camel's name was Qaswa, it was a female camel, sat down and refused to move. So once they reached Hudaybiyah, that plane, the camel just sat down. Of course, the camel of the Prophet was blocking the road. So all the companions behind the camel started yelling at the camel. Come on, Qaswat, move. Come on, move. What, what are you waiting for? Why did you sit now? And the camel did not move. So some of them started saying, you know what? Qaswat has become stubborn. And our Prophet responds and said, she has not become stubborn. And it's not in her nature. And it shows that the Prophet knows his animal. And then he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who caused her to stop. Now that means there is a wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused the camel to stop in that specific location. Now that location, like we said, we call it, it's called the plain of Hudaybiyah. Hudaybiyah is actually... Uh, 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 the word Hudaybiyah comes from the word Hudba. And Hudba basically means a hunchback. In English, it means the hunchback. And the reason why this plane was called the hunchback is because there was a tree, a big tree uh, in this plane that looked like a hunchback. So the plane was called after that tree. So that's why it was called the plane of Hudaybiyah as, you know, like the hunchback of that tree. Now, they camped there. They camped in Hudaybiyah. The Muslims were thirsty and hungry. They've been traveling for a very long time. There was a well in Hudaybiyah, but the well literally had just, you know, a very few amount of water. There was not a lot of water at all. It was not enough for even a few of them. So the Prophet ﷺ asked them to bring him some of that water. So, you know, a couple of people went down the well, brought that water. The Prophet ﷺ gargled that water, then he spat it back into the well. Now, for those of you who are, you know, weirded out, 
or he think or they think you know this is like disgusting or whatever we mentioned many many times uh, you know throughout the seerah throughout the biography that the spit the saliva of the prophet sallam and his sweat are nothing like ours ours are p- impure it's it's basically filth leaving our body the prophet sallam was different because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it was a miracle that you know uh, allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave our Prophet that every body fluid he produced smelt like perfume, like cologne. We mentioned this before. And it did not have any bacteria. The Prophet was literally, literally pure from any bacteria, any of these things. SubhanAllah. So when he spits in something, it's like blessed water. This is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given to the Prophet and he given uh, you know give it gave it to him alone. Didn't give it to anybody else. So it's one of the miracles of the Prophet. So when he spat back the water into the well, instantly the water started rising in the well to the degree that the people who were down the well, you know, bringing some water to the Prophet, they started rushing up the well so they wouldn't drown. Subhanallah, it was like a magical situation that took place. Instantly, the water started rising, 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 and they had to rush all the way up so they wouldn't drown. And it is reported that all 1,400 men and their camels and their animals, horses and and whatnot, they were drinking water to their fill all the way until this whole entire incident took place, until they left. Later on, they left Hudaybiyah. They were drinking all the time and... You know, that well never even decreased a bit, subhanAllah. And it, again, we shouldn't be surprised. It's a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he given our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Now, Quraysh found out that the Prophet sallallahu but it was of course too late, that he took a different route. And they kind of figured out that he was in the plain of Hudaybiyah. So they sent a little team to surprise attack them. And it shows you Quraysh never honored the sacred months. If they wanted to go to war, they would go to war during the sacred months. And they would manipulate, like we said, they would manipulate the timing. And they would say, no, 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 no. This, mo- this month is not a sacred month. It's next month that is a sacred month. You know? So they can, you know, go attack other tribes uh, if they want to. So they came, they attacked the Muslims. They surrounded the Muslims. But of course, the Muslims were prepared. Uh, and they actually surrounded them. And they took... Uh, the men who that little team as prisoners and they sent them to the Prophet and the Prophet forgave all these men and he sent them back to Mecca and that was a clear sign that the Prophet did not want war he didn't care about war he's there to fulfill Allah's command and we know how much he loved Mecca it was it's his hometown you know, and it is also known that how much he loved to pray by the Kaaba. So he was excited, very excited that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded him to do something he always wanted to do. He did not care about war. He didn't want war. So he sent back uh, that little team uh, to Quraysh. And then they they calmed down a little bit when they realized what the Prophet did. And he, you know, uh, chose to spare their lives. So they said, you know what? They, they still had pride and arrogance. They said, uh, so what's what's now? What's going to happen now? So people from other tribes, 
you know, not from Mecca, not from Medina, just from, you know, uh, some other uh, far tribes, decided to volunteer to uh, be emissaries between the Muslims and Quraysh, you know, to be, uh, you know, intermediaries, to talk about it, to be middlemen, to, to resolve the issue and, you know, get to a solution. Every single emissary who came to the Prophet وسلم, had the same, you know, talk, had the same response from the Prophet He always tells them that war has damaged Quraysh, and it did. It did affect them economically, you know, um, uh, it demoralized this whole concept of that Quraysh is now the best of the best. You know, it just, it, it, it destroyed that concept. And, you know, and the Prophet said that we do not want war with them. And if they're willing to negotiate, we will show them who we truly are. And if they want war, then war it is. SubhanAllah. Like, we're not weak here. Yes, we want to go and we want to do Umrah, but we want to negotiate. If you want to negotiate, you'll see that you know, you're going to win. You're not going to lose. But if you don't want to negotiate and want to start a war, we don't care. We will fight back. Because that, in that, like, you know, in, in that case it will be self-defense so you know the emissaries would go back to Quraysh and they will say listen our own opinion is that you guys have no reason to be that harsh to the Muslims they obviously came here in peace they want peace they don't want to fight you not even because of this incident they don't want to fight you period right and you know uh, um, it's just simple for the people of Quraysh to agree to those terms because they have the upper hand now you have to understand Quraysh they are the number one authority in Mecca so they have the upper hand so basically the emissaries say just you know just let it go let it be and start you know a peaceful era with the Muslims but also the emissaries will always get the same response from the elders and the, the seniors of Quraysh which is we will not allow the Muslims to enter Mecca because what would people say the Muslims came to our you know uh, our city after going to war with us and we allowed it to happen and they said at least this year so they put a little bit of a clause at the end at least this year they want to come perform umrah let them come next year but we have to work out certain things but they're never gonna step uh, foot into mecca this year so one of the interesting incidents is when an emissary uh, by the name of Urwa, he uh, he uh, came from uh, 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 the tribe called Thaqif. Now, the tribe of Thaqif is in Ta'if. You guys remember the incident of Ta'if? When the Prophet ﷺ went to preach Islam to them and they started throwing rocks at him and he was bleeding everywhere, that is a Ta'if. It's a very harsh uh, city. Uh, and this guy comes from one of the tribes within that city. And he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he starts accusing him. Hey, you're you're coming here to damage kinship. You're destroying family ties. You're you want war. And to that the Prophet ﷺ said, What are you talking about? I came to observe the ties of kinship and to invite people to one religion and to worship one God. That is more true and more better than the current religion that they're on. And to make their lives, by following this religion, their lives will be a lot better. And their hereafter, not just their lives, their hereafter will also be a lot better. 
So what are you talking about when you say I came here with destruction and all these, you know, basically shenanigans that you're talking about? And then Urwa, uh, uh, you know, kind of understood what the Prophet ﷺ said. Uh, he also, one of the things that happened is that Urwa kept saying, well, th- those people are strangers. Those people are strangers. He's talking about who? The people of Ansar, the people of Medina. Who are those people? If you go to battle, if you go to war with Quraysh, they will be the first to abandon you. And of course, to that, the Ansar got so angry, so furious, and Urwa saw that in their eyes. Right? Urwa saw that in their eyes. So after spending in, you know, enough time with them, he went back to Quraysh, Urwa. And he said, and this is you have to this is very interesting by my dear brothers and sisters, because this is a guy who is not a Muslim, uh, who has a problem with Islam. And who is seeing the companions and uh, how they dealt with the Prophet from an outsider perspective. Now, the companions themselves never said that, what what I'm about to say. It came from someone who's on the outside, who's not even a Muslim. He said this, I've seen so many kings and emperors, but I have never seen them. He went to, you know, he went to visit the palaces. Again, he's a senior in Thaqif. He has, you know, privileges and all these things. So he has connections. So he's seen palaces and, and, and he went to see emperors and all these things. So he said, I have never seen, now he, he said, I've seen many kings, I've seen many emperors, but I have never seen a king respected the way Muhammad's companions respect him. Look at this. This is coming from a non-Muslim. Then he mentioned examples of what he saw. When he spoke, they all lowered their heads out of respect. When he looks at one of them, they understand exactly what he wants. You have to understand that when you are a king or you are a president, the people respect you because of your position, right? It shows that they respect you just because you are the president. Now, what Urwa saw was unconditional loyalty to the Prophet he understand that man had experience. He's seen people, and he he saw people treating their kings and their, and that's why he's making that comment. He saw pure loyalty, and he was amazed by it. You know, the Prophet never commanded them to treat him that way. It came naturally, and that's why the companions are very special. They are the best of mankind after the prophets and messengers. We know that for a fact. What is amazing is, and this is very interesting, this is very amazing, that this emissary, Urwa, he changed his perspective 180 degrees after spending a few hours with the Muslims. Because what happened? He told them, oh, those people will flee. They will leave you to fight alone. They will abandon you. Remember? That was in the beginning of the meeting. He spent uh, uh, like probably an hour or two with them. And he came and he said, these people are willing to die for him. They believe him and they believe in him so much. They respect him so much. Subhanallah, amazing. He changed his views 180 degrees in an hour or two. Subhanallah. Urwa also tells the people of Quraysh, I fear that you will not be able to win over Muhammad. Like I see something happening here. Besides, he's now trying to reason with them. 
this man is coming in peace and he wants to honor the house of God and you guys want to deprive him from doing so. Like, why are you guys doing this? And to that, Quraysh got harsh with Urwa. So Urwa said, you know what? My people and I will cut ties with you guys. Now the Quraysh lost an ally because of how vulgar they, you know, got and how disrespectful they got by not respecting his opinion and all these things. By the way, Urwa accepted Islam later on here and he has a very interesting story actually. Uh, when he came to our Prophet Sallallahu uh, and he told him that, you know, he wants to accept Islam, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu told him, I worry about you because uh, your people are very harsh. Like we said, the people of Ta'if. They won't like the fact that you accepted Islam. But Urwa had too much confidence in his people, actually, a little bit too much. He said, you know what? I know my people. They respect me. They love me. They will accept me. And inshallah, later on, they will accept the message of Islam. Now, Urwa, this is later on. This is years on from the incident of the peace treaty. I'm just, you know, jumping the gun to tell you what happened with Urwa. Urwa, after he accepts Islam, he returns to his people and he starts preaching Islam. And while he's preaching, this is day one, they become very hostile you know, they start, you know, like cursing him out, yelling at him, and he gets a little shocked. So he goes home, you know, tries to, you know, uh, think of something to, you know, he, so he could go back in the next day and, you know, talk to them and preach Islam to them. And he wakes up to pray Fajr time, dawn prayers. So he goes on, on the roof of his house, on top of his house, and he makes the event, the call for prayers. And he starts praying Fajr. And when someone, one of the people of Thaqif, sees him praying Fajr, they grab, he grabs his bow and arrow and he shoots him dead. He literally fires an arrow and he kills Urwa. And Urwa dies as a martyr, you know, very shortly after accepting Islam. And then Urwa, when the Prophet found out about Urwa, and what happened to him and how he died, he said this very interesting hadith, and it's a beautiful hadith. He said the Urwa was like the man from Yasin. Now, there's a chapter in the Quran called Yasin, and specifically verse number 20, that tells, وَإِذْ جَاءَ مِنْ أَقْصَى الْمَدِينَةِ رَجُلٌ يَسْعَى قَالَ يَا قَوْمُ اتَّبِعُ الْمُرْسَلِينَ اتَّبَعُ مَنْ لَا يَسْأَلُكُمْ أَجْرًا وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ So a man comes, and uh, from a previous nation and asks people to worship Allah alone and he asks the uh, you know those people to follow the messengers that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to them and not humiliate them but of course just for the fact that he did preach that uh, worshiping Allah alone and preach monotheism to them they killed him for it so the prophet is is drawing a comparison here between the man in yasin in the chapter of yasin to Orwa and his death and how his people killed him. So the emissaries kept, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. And again, Quraysh, they were adamant about their position. They did not want, you know, the Muslims to uh, come into Mecca in this year. So the Prophet, you know, decided to send uh, someone who is uh, prestigious, who uh, has lineage, who has respect 
in in Quraysh, and that person was none other than Uthman ibn Affan. Uh, Uthman, remember the one who the, the the angels are shy from because how shy he is from Allah subhanahu wa taala. That is Uthman. Uh, 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 he was also one of the the four people uh, climbing the mountain of Uhud. Remember, and we said that the mountain was shaking. And then the Prophet said, you know, there's a messenger on you, there's a Siddiq, and there is two martyrs. That is Uthman, along with Abu Umar and Abu Bakr. So the top four companions, Al-Khulafa al-Rashidin, what we call the, the caliphates, the four famous caliphates, are Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali ibn Abi Talib. The, the cousin of the Prophet also we've heard many stories about him and how brave he is in a battlefield. So anyway, so the Prophet decides to, to send Uthman because of, you know, his lineage and all these things uh, into Mecca. And he was stopped by whatever the guards guarding the gates of Mecca. And he was asked, they were vulgar to him. He was asked to go back. But within that group, Uthman's cousin, of course, obviously he's still a pagan. He was there and it turned like it's obvious that Uthman's cousin respected Uthman so much because what happened is his cousin went to him and he offered protection. Now, we know back from the day that when you are offered protection by someone from Quraysh, no one can touch you. No one can touch you. So, his cousin puts him on his own horse. So, Uthman's cousin puts Uthman on his horse as a sign, this is under my, he is under my protection now. No one, you know, should harm him. So Uthman enters Mecca and he met with all the seniors. Again, they told Uthman the same thing. The, you guys can come this year. Uh, if uh, we have, uh, you know, certain conditions uh, you guys follow, then we will allow you to come next year. But for some reason, the negotiations with Uthman took a very long time, took the entire day. And because of that, the Muslims started doubting that Quraysh killed Uthman. They started thinking, okay, they killed him. Why, why is it taking the whole day? They killed him. They did something to him. They're hostile. And the rumors started spreading in the camp of the Muslims. And that was the ultimate test. And I'll tell you what exactly was the ultimate test. The Prophet ﷺ, you know, the news reached him. Jibreel did not come to him. Allah did not reveal anything to him regarding that yet. So the Prophet ﷺ said, if they indeed killed Uthman, we will not leave until we avenge him. Because now this becomes, again, defense. They attacked us first. So Jibreel came down to our Prophet ﷺ and told him to ask the Muslims to pledge allegiance to fight Quraysh and never turn their backs, meaning they fight Quraysh until they die because of that incident. Now, we know that Allah knows that Uthman is not dead. So why did Jibreel come and ask the Muslims to do so? Because it was a test for the Muslims. It was a test for the Muslims. And it was a big test. Are you guys? And like I said, this life is filled with tests. For those who complain that they have a bad day, look at what the companions had to go through. Why are we being tested? Because paradise is not cheap, my dear brothers and sisters. If you know, the Prophet himself says in an authentic hadith, if you know what paradise looks like and what can you have in paradise, 
Oh my Lord, you will do the impossible to get to it. You'll do the impossible. You'll go above and beyond to get to paradise, subhanAllah. So they were being tested. Even the Prophet was not told that Uthman was alive because if the Prophet was told, that means he has to lie. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want him to lie. That's my own, you know, uh, uh, my own conclusion why he was not told because the Prophet knowing that Uthman is alive, that means he has to pretend that we're going to war for no reason, right? Now, also the test is because there's no food or water and they're not properly prepared for battle. They came in peace. Yes, they have a few armors here and there and a sword here and there for self-defense, but not for battle. And they are exhausted and far away from home. And above all, they are totally outnumbered. Totally outnumbered. So, if they pledge allegiance to go to war with these odds, then they pass the test. And guess what? They do. And this allegiance is called the allegiance of the pleasure of Allah. Bay'atul Ridwan. Ridwan comes from pleasure, the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they all, like we said, pledged allegiance to the Prophet. And this is actually mentioned in the chapter of Fatah, verse number 10 and verse number 18. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُبَيْعُونَكَ إِنَّمَا يُبَيْعُونَ اللَّهَ يَدُ اللَّهُ فَوْقَ أَيْدِيهِمْ فَمَنْ نَكَثَ فَإِنَّمَا يَنْكُثُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ وَمَنْ أَوْفَ بِمَا عَاهَدَ عَلَيْهِ فَاللَّهُ فَسَيُؤْتِيَ أَجْرًا عَظِيمًا How does this pledge take place? Like how does it happen? So you go and you shake the hands of the Prophet you know, with their right hand because we know Muslims will shake hands with the right hands. And then with the other hand, you close on the hand of the Prophet so you know you you have the, the the palm of the Prophet between your two hands, the right hand that's shaking the hand of the Prophet, and then you're closing with the left hand. So that's how it's, it makes sense, you know, like let's shake on it basically. And then the Prophet actually says something very interesting. He says what? And because Uthman is not there, thinking he's dead, I will shake I will do the allegiance, I will pledge allegiance on his behalf. And then he takes his left hand shakes his own right hand as if it's Uthman's, and then he takes the pledge for Uthman, which is a great honor for Uthman ibn Affan because the Prophet took his place in the pledge. SubhanAllah. And Allah says, comments on this, and he says that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that, and my hand is above their hands. When they are shaking the hands of the Prophet my hand and we, we all affirm that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a hand that it befits his majesty. We do not know what it looks like. We don't even try to imagine what it looks like. We don't know. We will never know. But Allah says, affirms that he has a hand and he puts it on top of the hands of the Prophet and those who are shaking the hands of the, those who are taking the pledge, basically. Yadullah fawqa aidihim. Allah's hand is above their hands. So they're, Allah saying they basically are pledging allegiance to me through the Prophet Then Allah says, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايُعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ فَعَلِمَ مَا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ فَأَنْزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا Allah is been, has been pleased with those. They passed the test. Allah saying they passed the test. Now they do not know that it's a test yet. 
They do not they, because these verses were not revealed right there. They were revealed on their way back, leaving the 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 the, the Hudaybiyah, the plain of Hudaybiyah, the plains of Hudaybiyah, on their way back to Medina. These verses will be revealed now. So Allah is saying that Allah is pleased with those people who pledge allegiance, except for one. There's one person who did not pledge allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, again because he's a hypocrite, and that was the same, most likely the scholars say that was the same uh, man with the red camel, because he was a hypocrite from, you know, day one. Now, meanwhile, the people of Quraysh heard that the Muslims are preparing for battle. <laughs> so they got so scared that they said to Uthman, you know what, man, just go back to your people. They think we killed you, so just go and inform them that everything is okay, that you're fine. And it shows you. Again, like I said, the Muslims were outnumbered and Quraysh knew that. But if you are upon the truth, Allah will make your enemy fear you. No matter how big they seem to be, no matter you know how their quantity seem to be, Allah is the one who causes fear and Allah is the one who causes peace. Do not forget that. Now, some of the Muslims, you know, uh, uh, now the, the Muslims saw Uthman coming back to the camp They got very excited They got very happy And now they know that they don't have to go to war So one of them asked Uthman Hey man, did you tell me Did you do tawaf while you are inside Mecca? I mean, you got the privilege of being in Mecca How lucky you are And when Uthman heard this He got so angry and he said How evil is what you're saying How evil is such a thought you think that I would do tawaf before the Prophet ﷺ? I swear even if I stayed a whole year in Mecca, I would never do tawaf before the Prophet ﷺ. And it shows you the status of Uthman and how polite and how much he respected the Prophet ﷺ. And all the companions did. SubhanAllah, all the companions did. Now, because Quraysh got scared of this little preparation for war, they decided to, you know, end this negotiation. Let's 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 get to something, you know, let's get to the meat now. Let's, you know, sit down with the Muslims and figure out what can we do before they get more angry and, you know, things get out of control. That's simply what happened. So Quraysh sent a delegation led by Suhail ibn Amr. Now Suhail ibn Amr was known to be a very good politician. He is a good negotiator. Now, uh, a backstory about Suhail. Uh, he has two sons. Abdullah. Uh, Abdullah is his son. And Abu Jandal. Abdullah and Abu Jandal. These are two sons that Suhail has. They were both Muslims. They were both Muslims. They became Muslims. Uh, Abdullah is on the side of the Muslims. He was able to successfully uh, emigrate to Medina. But Abu Jandal wasn't able to. Like Abu Jandal converted and before he emigrated to Medina, Suhail captured him. He captured his own son and he put him in prison. He put him literally in a dungeon for around four years for just being a Muslim. SubhanAllah. Since the Battle of Badr. So since the Battle of Badr, up until this treaty, it's been four years. And since the Battle of Badr, Abu Jandal, the second son of the, and the younger son of Suhail, was locked in a dungeon. Now, during this negotiation, uh, 
Abu Jandal actually managed to escape. He found out that the Muslims are here. There's a big deal going on. There might be war. They might be preparing for battle. So he managed to be, you know, to escape. And this will come, this will be significant in, you know, the next few minutes. And I'll tell you how exactly. So, Suhail now arrives to the camp of the Muslims. Uh, and they are ready to write an official treaty. Uh, and since our Prophet ﷺ is illiterate, he calls uh, uh, for a scribe. Ali ibn Abi Talib, his cousin, was the scribe, and he was the one who you know wrote the treaty uh, on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. So they started writing the treaty, writing the conditions, and our Prophet ﷺ asked to do the Umrah, but Suhail said simply, not this year. We cannot agree to that. You know, we don't want, you know, other tribes to think we're weak. So rather, we'll do it next year if you agree to our conditions. Number one, the first condition, and this is a very tough one. If any man decides to convert to Islam and they come to you and we want them back, you hand them back. So basically, do not accept them. This is tough. You're rejecting newly Muslims. Muslims who just converted, you're telling them, nope, your people want you back, you have to go back. And the Muslims hated that. Now, the Muslims are attending, the companions are attending the treaty. And they thought this was incredibly unfair. And it was unfair by the people of Quraysh. And the Rasulullah, you know, he wanted to fulfill Allah's command and Allah did not reveal anything to prevent this from happening. So the Prophet ﷺ was basically about to agree to this. So during this discussion, Abu Jandal manages to get to the camp of the Muslims while he was chained. And when his father, Suhail, saw him, he literally said, this is the first one that the condition will be applied to. He has to come back to me. He has to be returned to Mecca right now. Our Prophet ﷺ started trying to bargain with, Suha with Suhail. Hey, Suhail, just you know, make an exception for Abu Jandal. And Suhail is like, nope. He's like, just just leave him. You know, just we'll start from you know after today. And Suhail said, no. Now it's personal to Suhail. His his own son uh, was able to escape, and he hated that. So Suhail said, if you don't give me back my son, if you don't reject him, you yourself reject him and do the rest with anybody else who comes to you and we, you know, we ask for them, there will be no treaty between us. You won't be able to come and perform Umrah. The Prophet ﷺ kept pleading multiple times, but Suhail said, no way, not going to happen. And then when Suhail saw that the Prophet ﷺ was insisting, he said, I give you my word that nothing and no one will harm Abu Jandal. I will not allow anything or anyone to harm him uh, and he will be taken care of. And Abu Jandal was heartbroken when he saw this happening. Now this is happening in front of him. He's in the camp. And it was difficult Imagine you were locked up for four years and when you get the chance to go to the prophet who was sent to you, he had to tell you, please go back. 
It was a difficult decision. Very difficult condition, by the way. Very difficult condition. And the Prophet ﷺ looked at Abu Jandal and he spoke to him directly and he said, Be patient, Abu Jandal. Allah will make a way out for you. Be patient. Abu Jandal, heartbroken, but he accepted and he went back to Mecca. Now, the second condition uh, was that the Muslims and the people of Quraysh would be in peace for 10 years. No war, no nothing. Which is great. The Muslims wanted that, right? Now, what's amazing about this incident is that the, the people of Quraysh tortured and persecuted the Muslims and treated them like they were, you know, not humans, right? Now they are writing a peace treaty with them. And there's a discussion, there's a, you know, they're sitting on a, ta- on, a, on a table to discuss what to do in the future between the two groups. And it shows you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevated the status of the Muslims. Now they are, a, a, you know, an entity that Quraysh cannot ignore anymore. They cannot ignore anymore. You know, subhanAllah. And this is an honor and a dignity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given the Muslims. Now, after the treaty was written, so these were the two main conditions. There were minor conditions that are not really in importance or anything like that. And they said, okay, this is the treaty. If you guys fulfill the treaty, next year you can come and perform Umrah. Now, Omar was wondering why did the Prophet ﷺ agree to this? Like he went to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, aren't we upon the truth, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. Isn't Allah on our side? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. So he said, why did we agree to this then? So the Prophet ﷺ responded, Allah commanded me to do so and I will not disobey Allah. Then Omar asked, didn't you see that we were doing tawaf in your dream? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, I did. But Allah did not inform me that it was going to be this year. Yes, I, I saw that I was doing tawaf, but that does not mean I'm doing it this year. Which makes sense if you think about it, right? Allah did not inform the Prophet ﷺ that he's going to do it this year. The timeline was not there in the dream. Then Umar went to Abu Bakr. And he asked him the same questions. Are we upon the truth? What's happening? Now, you have to understand, Umar is angry with the conditions that Quraysh put. Especially after seeing Abu Jandal and what happened to him. So he's angry. And for good reason, not, you know, he's angry. He's not angry at the Prophet or anything, astaghfirullah, no. But he's just, you know, upset about the situation. So he goes to Abu Bakr and he basically tells him the same thing. And Abu Bakr gets angry. And he tells them, our Prophet is the messenger of Allah. And like he told you, he's never going to disobey Allah. So just follow his commands or I'm afraid there will be no salvation for you if you question this. And to that, Omar started to realize what he was doing. His anger was getting out of control. And Omar, we know that he loves Islam so much. By the way, his anger is coming from faith. He's not questioning Allah. He's not questioning the Prophet. He's questioning the situation. But his anger got the better of him. Right? So, he realized that what he did was wrong. Even Umar himself tells us that he started repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a very, very long time. And he started doing a lot of good deeds for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to expiate 
the sin of him getting angry. And we know this in, in Islam. When you commit a sin, part of your repentance is to do good deeds. This is mentioned in the chapter of Hud, uh, verse number uh, uh, 114. When you do good deeds, it wipes away the bad deeds, the sins. Now, most of the companions thought that the Hudaybiyah, uh, uh, the, 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 that treaty, that peace treaty, was a loss. But in fact, it was a victory. And the companions will know this in, in literally in, on their way back. Then the Prophet ﷺ tells them to shave their heads, sacrifice their animals, and head back home. Now, what is that? This is basically, this marks the ending of the ritual. They did not perform Umrah. And, and this is, by the way, it's in our, uh, in our rulings. If you are about to go to Hajj or Umrah and you don't make it for any reason, uh, but you're there, you shave your head and you slaughter your animal, whatever the animal that you're going to sacrifice, and you go back home if you missed it, if you won't be able to do it. So that was to them a mark that it, this, this, this chance has ended. They missed it. They have to shave their heads and they have to sacrifice their animals as if they performed it and then go back and this is the first and the only time in the history of the biography of the prophet that the companions stood still they could not out of shock they could not obey the commands of the prophet the prophet told them go shave your heads there was like some sort of a barber there who was ready to you know shave their heads they stood still they froze the prophet repeated again Shave your heads, sacrifice your animals, and let's head home. No response. A third time, he said it three times. Shave your heads, sacrifice your animals, and let's head home. There was no response. The Prophet got irritated and frustrated, so he went back to his tent. And Umm Salama, we talked about Umm Salama, one of uh, the Prophet's wives, we, and she was, if you guys remember, she was the one to be known to be uh, the one with the most wisdom. So she was there in his tent, and he basically told her, "They don't want to. They're not listening." So Umm Salama gives him a very profound advice. She says, "What, O Prophet of Allah, go in front of them and shave your head. Let the barber shave your head, and sacrifice your animal, and they will follow. When they see you doing it, they." will follow and the prophet ﷺ took her advice he actually went outside and uh, the barber came shaved his head and he sacrificed his, uh, his animal and when they saw this happening they realized this is it the prophet ﷺ did it we have to do it now that means this was not a drill this is happening so they all started you know competing with one another who you know shaves their head first and basically the Suggestion of Umm Salama worked out perfectly. On their way back to Medina, now Omar feels ashamed. And he goes to apologize to the Prophet Remember, because he got a little bit angry. So he goes to the, to the Prophet and he apologizes to him. And he goes and says, Salamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The Prophet does not respond. He says it again. Assalamu alaikum. The Prophet does not respond. He said it a third time. Assalamu alaikum. The Prophet ﷺ does not respond. And it is known that when you say salam to a Muslim for three times and they do not respond, just walk away. 
The maximum is three times. If they don't want to respond to you, just walk away after three salams, say, uh, basically. Omar got so depressed that the Prophet did not respond to him. He said, I'm doomed. He's that angry with me. I'm done. There is no hope for me. Then a writer comes in and he asks Omar, hey, the Prophet wants to talk to you. So Omar rides up to our Prophet and he becomes really surprised when he sees that the Prophet was very happy. And then the Prophet it turns out he did not answer Omar because he was in a state of revelation. We said that the state of revelation when the Prophet is receiving revelation, he's not, he goes into another dimension. And that's why he seems that he's in our world, but he's technically not. And uh, he started, the Prophet while he was happy, he started reciting the chapter of Fatah, which the, these are the verses that we talked about that now are revealed that tells the Muslims that this was indeed a victory. And it was a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that they all passed the test, of course, except for the hypocrite, which he doesn't care about the verses anyway. And the, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala started praising the companions and all those who pledged allegiance. And it turns out that Rasulullah, again, was not mad at Omar at all. He was just in a state of revelation. Omar got so happy for multiple reasons. Number one, that the Rasulullah was not mad at him. He now confirmed that the Rasulullah did not respond for a specific reason. Number two, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala confirmed that the Muslims won during that treaty and not the opposite, and they did not lose. And the third reason that made Omar so happy is the amount of praise that the companions received from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that chapter for what they did, which is uh, pledging allegiance. And of course, the rest of the Muslims became very, very happy. And they started seeing the victory. And one of the main incidents, the biggest incident that showed that this was indeed a victory, and this is wallahi, Wallahi, incredible. Now, we said that, you know, there are people, if somebody now is converting to Islam uh, and Quraysh ask for them back, the Prophet has to send them back. So a man by the name of Abu Basir, he comes from Quraysh, he became a Muslim, and he uh, seeks refuge in Medina. The Prophet did not comment when he arrived in Medina. Now, why, why is that? Because the Prophet is honoring the letter of the treaty, not the intention of it. So when they said, if, if someone comes in and we ask for them, you bring them to us. They didn't say anything about it if they didn't ask for them. So if somebody comes in, converts to Islam, Quraysh doesn't even know about it, they're more than welcome. So again, the Prophet is honoring the letter of the treaty, not the intention, not their intention. Of course, they intended everybody, but the letter is what the Prophet is honoring. So uh, the Prophet did not comment when Abu Basir came. But then unfortunately, two days later, uh, Mecca sends two emissaries asking for Abu Basir. They go to the Prophet and they say, hey, man, we are, you know, in, 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 we have peace going on right now. And you are supposed to fulfill your, your, your part of the deal. And we know that Abu Basir is here. He's becoming, you know, he became a Muslim, so we want him back. So the Prophet ﷺ, you know, brings Abu Basir and he says, basically, these two men came to take you back to Mecca and you came here knowing the treaty. So I cannot betray the treaty. Unfortunately, 
I'm so sorry, but I cannot betray it. So you have to return to your people. Abu Basir returned with, you know, the two men. And on the way, he was able to take the sword of one of them, killed one of them. And then the second one went back to Medina. And he ran directly to the Prophet and he told them, protect me. Abu Basir killed my partner and now he's after me. Of course, our Prophet protected that man from Abu Basir. And when Abu Basir arrived to Medina, uh, the Prophet said, you cannot stay in Medina. They will send more people after you. And this is going to start a war and I cannot betray the treaty. And it shows you the character of the Prophet He's dealing with pagans. And Abu Basir is a Muslim. But he cannot betray the treaty. Look, it shows you the honor of the Prophet Hence the honor of us when we follow his sunnah. That's what exactly we should do. Doesn't matter if it's a Muslim or not. When you have a deal with someone, a covenant, a treaty, a contract, whatever, you name it, you have to honor it and never ever betray it. And that's exactly what happened with the Prophet So Abu Basir realized that okay now I, I can't stay you know like this is this is uh, this is dangerous for me because they're going to send more people and this might cause war with the muslims you know between Quraysh and the muslims and abu basir does not want to cause that so he leaves medina and he settles in a place in a in a small city between mecca and medina and he starts sending messages to all the converts in mecca come and join me i'm in this location Come and of course it was a discreet it was a discreet message meant only for the converts. And who receives the message? Abu Jandal, the son of Suhail. Remember the one who escaped during the treaty, and he went to the camp, and the Prophet had to tell him to go back. Abu Jandal receives that message, so he meets with Abu Basir in that city. And a lot of people, a lot of converts started, you know, hearing about this, so they go. They went to that little, you know, town, that little city, and until they became about 80 people. They became 80 people, 80 converts live in that little mini city. Uh, and, and then because they wanted vengeance from Quraysh, they started attacking all the caravans of Quraysh. So that city obviously was centered between Mecca and Medina, and there were trading caravans that were going, doing some trades and coming back. So they started intercepting them, and they started you know, attacking them. And the thing is, they are totally justified. Quraysh wouldn't let us live in Mecca as Muslims, and they wouldn't even let us live outside of Mecca as Muslims. You guys don't want us to be Muslims, period. So you wouldn't let us practice our religion within Mecca and you wouldn't even allow us to go with the rest of the Muslims. It's incredibly unfair. So they said, I'm going to, we go, we're going to attack the caravans just to weaken the people of Quraysh. And they, they became very powerful. They became very powerful. Here's the interesting part. Here's the beautiful part, actually. And it shows you Allah's plotting and Allah's planning. Between the Muslims and Quraysh, part of the treaty was what? peace for 10 years right and what's the second part which is the painful part is that no converts are not allowed into the muslim community right and because these 80 men who are attacking the caravans are not allowed into the muslim community of medina 
the Prophet ﷺ cannot command them to stop attacking them. Because if Quraysh comes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, hey, we have peace. These people, these 80 converts are Muslims. Ask them to stop. The Prophet ﷺ will say, I have no authority on them. I rejected them. They don't live with us anymore. I have no control over them. So look, subhanAllah. By doing that, Quraysh started herding their own selves, their own caravans. It backfired. It backfired, subhanAllah. It backfired. They plot against Allah, but Allah is the best of plotters. You cannot plot against someone who knows your intentions, who knows your advancing you know, plans and whatnot. Allah, you cannot plot against Allah. So look, it backfired. The two conditions backfired, subhanAllah. Because they are converts, they're not allowed into the Muslim community, hence the Muslim community has no control over them. And because the whole peace treaty thing going on, they're not part of the treaty anyway. These 80 people, they're not part of the treaty. So they are going to war with Quraysh and they don't care because they're not part of the treaty. They're not considered to be part of the treaty. So look at what happened. Quraysh, because they were seriously harmed by those attacks within like a year and a half, for a year and a half, imagine these 80 converts led by Abu Basir and Abu Jandal were hurting Quraysh so badly, Quraysh decides to send a delegation to the Prophet ﷺ begging him, please man, take all these 80 people, accept them into you know the Muslim community, accept them into Medina, we're not even going to argue with you, subhanAllah. Subhanallah, it's it's incredible. Quraysh begged the Prophet ﷺ to take these 80 men. Just take them. We were wrong. Take them. So the Prophet ﷺ, you know, subhanAllah, Allah's plan. Allah, it's, it's fascinating. A fascinating story. So uh, the Prophet ﷺ sends a messenger to Abu Basir to tell them, come in, you guys are now allowed. The treaty has been broken just for you guys. And now you can come and live with us in Medina. Unfortunately, Abu Basir at the time was sick. So he passed away before he was able to reach Medina. But Abu Jandal with the rest of, you know, with the rest of the, the converts were able to, you know, come to Medina and live in Medina as Muslims and as, you know, uh, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is Allah fulfilling. Like the Prophet ﷺ, what did the Prophet ﷺ tell Abu Jandal? Allah will find a way out for you. And look at this, look at Allah's plan. The Prophet ﷺ promised that Allah will find out. The Prophet ﷺ is not promising on behalf of Allah. Allah revealed and the Prophet ﷺ has trust in Allah's plan. Allah will never leave Abu Jandal like that. It was a test for Abu Jandal, and Abu Jandal passed the test. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala planned this so Abu Jandal would come to Medina by what? By a request from his own, from the people who prevented him from going to Medina. By a specific request from Quraysh, please take him and the rest of the people with him, the rest of the converts. SubhanAllah. Also, uh, and this is the last part that I'm going to end with, uh, the women, when women from Quraysh were, uh, 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 you know, became Muslims, they converted to Islam, that becomes problematic because a Muslim woman is not allowed to be married to a non-Muslim man. So now, if a woman converted to Islam in Quraysh and her husband is a pagan, she has to leave. She has to leave him. She, she's not allowed 
for him anymore. She's not his wife in the sight of Allah. And they came to the Prophet and there was actually a verse, the, the chapter of the Mumtahina was revealed regarding that. Uh, Allah is saying, when you realize that these were actually converts and, and they are believers, do not return them back to their husbands. They're not. They're not halal for them. They're not their husbands anymore. In the sight of Allah, and you can pay, you know, uh, whatever the money that you know the the dowry money to those husbands to be ultimately fair. And then, if you guys want to marry them, if 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 you know want to marry from these women, you are allowed to because they are automatically divorced from their husbands in the sight of Allah the moment they became Muslims. So we learned that you know with patience comes the reward. Half. Faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Do the work. But have faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah will uh, show the truth. Allah will support the truth eventually. Could be some, you know, rough bumps here and there, you know. But this could this all could be a test from Allah. Whatever the, the difficulty that you're in, whatever the dire situation that you're in, this all could be a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when it's said and done, and when it's all over, you'll see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you if you are truthful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thank you so much for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.